The filibuster, a political tool that we've been hearing more about in the media, but what is it really? And what role does it play in not only stalling political agendas, but importantly, in keeping black and brown people suppressed? If we're going to see it stay or possibly go away, we need to know more. And so we're talking about this today on why we should all care about the filibuster. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your half Japanese, half white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Oh, from our favorite Heather Richardson Cox's email newsletter on March 28, 2021. The Civil War began the process of linking the political power of people of color to a redistribution of wealth, which means wealth that wasn't just centralized in the hands of white people. And this rhetoric has haunted us ever since. When Ronald Reagan talked about the welfare queen or a black woman who stole tax dollars through social services fraud, when Tea Partiers called our first black president a socialist, when Trump voters claimed to be reacting to economic anxiety, they were calling on a long history. Today, Republicans talk about election integrity, but their end game is the same as that of the former Confederates after the war to keep black and brown Americans away from the polls to make sure the government does not spend tax dollars on public services. One of the key tools in making this happen is the filibuster. And if you want to know why, you have to know the history of this political tool first. And you know, we love that history, that is. So to back up a little and to touch on one of our other conversations, as noted by Anti-Racism Daily, voter suppression for black people has been around since the beginning and definitely in the post-Civil War era. As a refresher, the 15th Amendment, which was enacted in 1870, made it unconstitutional to deny any man the right to vote based on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And that's according to National Geographic. But Black men were often barred from the polls, along with other people of color, through statewide rules and regulations that limited their rights. This wasn't just a racial decision, but a political one because during that time, Black people overwhelmingly voted Republican. And before that sounds very strange to you, remember that at that time, Republican was the party of Abraham Lincoln. So how did they bar Black and brown people from the polls? States implemented polling taxes, which made it too expensive for any poor person to vote. Some also started to use literacy tests to thwart Black people, knowing that many weren't granted the opportunity to learn and were punished for attempting to. And side note, just because it is so interesting, here's a phrase to consider not using again. The grandfather clause is often included as a form of voter suppression. So it was a practice that granted prospective voters eligibility if their father or grandfather had voted in the past. And so this obviously did bar non-white voters from voting, but it was actually implemented to enfranchise, to give the right to vote to uneducated and or poor white men so that those same poll taxes and literacy tests that you just talked about did not block them. So the law became obsolete after a Supreme Court ruling in 1939, but you've all heard it, that term grandfathered in still remains. Yes, great reason to never use that term again. But besides those measures, individual states often felt the need to go even further because those weren't enough. For example, in Mississippi in 1890, the state went so far as to require voters to read and interpret a section of the state constitution chosen by a local official. I would not want to do that. Right? Let's just think about that one for a second. Who would want to do that? No one. White people were given simple clauses to read and often assisted by poll workers. 
In contrast, Black people were given the most incomprehensible clauses that even the most well-read political figure may not have understood. Notably, these were measures that individual states put in place to suppress individual voters because they were worried about Black voters supporting the Republican Party. Again, remember, that's the party of Lincoln. But white supremacy also found another way to subvert the vote of Black individuals or more largely any progressive agenda. That's the filibuster. And perhaps the easiest way to talk about the filibuster is through a quick fire, like rapid Q&A session, like The Week did in its piece about the filibuster way back in 2007. So let's start with some basics. So question is, what is a filibuster? It's a procedural maneuver by a senator or even a group of senators to block the party in power from getting its way. In order to launch a filibuster, a senator simply asks to be recognized by the presiding officer and then launches into a speech denouncing the offending legislation. And they keep talking and talking and talking about anything and everything. And it's a verbal barrage which is purposely designed to temporarily paralyze Senate business and prevent the disputed matter from being put to a vote. All right, next. And this is my favorite. Was the filibuster in the Constitution? And the answer is no. Filibusters were created by a quirk in Senate rules. When Congress first took office in 1789, both the House and Senate allowed any speech or debate to be cut off by a simple majority vote. The House still retains that rule. But in 1806, Vice President Aaron Burr, and yes, if you've seen Hamilton, you know who this dude is, persuaded senators that limiting debate was against the spirit of the Senate, which he argued was more prestigious than the House and needed different rules. So you got to love that one already. The rule in the Senate was dropped. It took some years, though, before senators realized that boring people to the point of tears could actually be used as a political weapon. And there's one really important point to note here. There's a specific reason why the filibuster was never in the Constitution. And I'm just starring this for everyone who theorizes about what the founders' true intent was in drafting the Constitution, because you need to be listening right now. The founding fathers were well aware of the dangers of minority rule and purposely designed the Senate to be majoritarian, which means, in other words, they envisioned the need for only a simple majority to conduct Senate business. As Rob Goodman and Jimmy Sony wrote in The Atlantic in 2011, there's a reason, after all, that there's no filibuster written into the Constitution. Our founders were deeply read in classical history, and they had good reason to fear the consequences of a legislature addicted to minority rule. As Alexander Hamilton wrote in The Federalist Number 22, if a pertinacious minority can control the opinion of the majority, the government situation must always savor a weakness, sometimes border upon anarchy. So in other words, minority rule, not good for anyone. And that's what the filibuster is doing. So who filibustered first? A little bit more history here. Some historians believe that it was John Randolph of Virginia, who in 1825 stood and refused to yield the Senate floor during a debate on a bill that he said favored the industrial north. In 1841, Democrats refused to yield the floor for three weeks to keep the Whigs, who had just become the majority, from firing Democrats on the federal payroll. After that, outnumbered senators realized that the rules on debate could be used to their advantage, and the tactic was used pretty regularly in the 1840s, though it still had no name. Then, a Washington person whose name is lost to history solved that problem after reading newspaper accounts of Caribbean pirates called filibusteros. The Spanish term was a corruption of the Dutch words for free and booty. These particular bandits specialized in kidnapping people and holding them for ransom. Soon, the Senate's legislative kidnappings 
were being called filibusters and the name stuck. All right. So how has the filibuster been used? And the answer is at times shamelessly. Under Senate rules, senators can talk about anything when they have the floor, not just the matter at hand, as Sarah, you mentioned earlier. When Huey Long of Louisiana spoke for 15 hours and 30 minutes against New Deal legislation in 1935. I mean, that's longer than my kids can even talk. Right. I know. I've got one who could probably do this, but unclear. So when he was speaking for, you know, 15 and a half hours, he offered up recipes for pot liquor, fried oysters, and Roquefort dressing. When he ran out of things to talk about, he asked his colleagues and reporters to offer suggestions. But the longest individual filibuster was made by Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who droned on for 24 hours and 18 minutes, notably against the Civil Rights Bill of 1957. To fill the time, he read the election laws of all 48 states, the Bill of Rights, and Washington's farewell address. I'm shaking my head because I need to talk about this next question here. Is there any way to stop a filibuster? There is now, but it requires a lot of senators' support. So during the 19th century, there was no mechanism for forcing a senator to sit down and shut up, basically. The rules were amended in 1917 after isolationist senators filibustered to block President Woodrow Wilson from arming merchant ships during World War I. And this is what happened. A little group of willful men, an outraged Wilson thundered, representing no opinion but their own, have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. So, chastened, the Senate passed Rule 22, which said that a two-thirds majority of those present so like a supermajority, you've heard that phrase in the media lately, could end a filibuster. It's a procedure called cloture. The two-thirds rule was subsequently changed to three-fifths, which is now 60 votes in 1975. Republicans were happy with that arrangement until President Bush's first term when outnumbered Democrats resorted to filibusters to block 10 of Bush's nominees to federal judgeships. All right. So last question. Has the filibuster and has it ever been stopped You know, before? So the answer is rarely, but yes. So let's talk about the use of the filibuster briefly in more recent times. In 1968, for example, conservative Republicans successfully filibustered Lyndon Johnson's nomination of Supreme Court Associate Justice Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice. During Bill Clinton's presidency, Republicans were able to bury about 40 of his federal judicial appointments without using the filibuster. They simply refused to schedule hearings on them. Does that sound familiar? It should. Well, it also sounds so juvenile, right? It sounds like stuff my kids would pull. I'm sorry to bring kids up, but it feels like I don't want to do this, right? It totally does. And as we noted during Bush's first term, Democrats got even by filibustering the most conservative of his judicial appointments. And P.S., that didn't go over well, even though over 200 judicial appointments under Bush got through anyway. As the root notes, and we agree, let's be clear, the filibuster means nothing. It does not ensure a bipartisan consensus, nor does it protect the minority party. The 60 vote threshold to close debate has been repeatedly modified or wholly abolished whenever the majority party deems it necessary. When Republicans obstructed Obama's federal court picks, Democrats eliminated the filibuster requirement for federal judicial nominees. Republicans used the filibuster to conform or eliminate the filibuster requirement, actually, to conform Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. For most of its history, the procedural rule required debate stalling senators to talk the entire time until it didn't. At one time, the House of Representatives also had a filibuster rule until it didn't. And the answer, 
because it's stupid. And yes, it is a tool of white supremacy. Barack Obama called the filibuster, quote, another Jim Crow relic. And this is really important. That's because for 99 years, every single anti-lynching bill presented in the Senate has been filibustered, including Rand Paul blocking the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act on the day of George Floyd's funeral. As we noted earlier, Strom Thurmond held the longest one-man filibuster in U.S. history to stall the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Southern Democrats hold the record for the longest party filibuster to block the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And even Woodrow Wilson, who was a strong white supremacist, noted that the Senate of the United States is the only legislative body in the world which cannot act when its majority is ready for action, adding, again, a little group of willful men representing no opinion but their own, have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. So again, think about how the filibuster has been used and think about how crucially important it has been to block civil rights legislation. And it's also been used to block other key measures in the Senate. Do you have thoughts on gun control? Because the filibuster continues to be used to block gun violence legislation. In 2013, There were two senators who introduced legislation requiring background checks for private gun purchases, which is a modest reform with massive popular support. What happened? The bill died in the Senate, despite garnering the support of 54 senators, including members of both parties. This bill is a great example of the lesson we need to learn about the filibuster going forward, because even bipartisan bills, however popular they may be, can and will be blocked by a small number of Republican senators if the filibuster remains in place. Another key measure, the DREAM Act. It would have passed in 2010 if not for the filibuster. Dreamers and their families continued to fight for their lives under the Trump administration, but the truth is that fight didn't need to happen except for the filibuster. In 2010, Congress and the White House were all controlled by Democrats. So when the House passed the DREAM Act and sent it over to the Senate, Dreamers hoped that they would soon get permanent relief from deportation. And instead, the DREAM Act was blocked because with a vote of 55 to 41, it didn't get the necessary 60 votes to advance. Again, it has to be a supermajority. We have taken out the ability of the majority will to actually make a difference at this stage. Right. That's such an important point. You know, but as Senate Democrats display an increased willingness to abolish or change the filibuster, it is not just Republicans or conservatives who are defending the archaic legislative loophole as an important institutional tool for stalling progress. While President Biden recently reversed course on his support for the filibuster, some Democrats are siding with Republicans on the necessity of keeping this alive. So if you're in Montana, Delaware, California, Colorado, Maine, or New Hampshire, you already have Democratic senators on record saying they're not totally convinced about canning the filibuster right now. I mean, personally, I agree. It might be a double-edged sword, right? And the filibuster in and of itself may not be the problem. But having all progressive policies, including voting rights, being stalled and being hamstrung from making changes about that the majority of the country wants, like gun control, for example, that's not going to work. That is stalling our country from making any changes and moves. And I think we have to think about Georgia right now and voting rights and how we voting rights legislation currently in the form of H.R. 1 is in front of our Congress. The filibuster is a key tool to block that legislation from happening and protecting voting rights for everyone. And when you think about Georgia and how voting rights have been really curtailed there to punish the people who put, you know, Warnock and Ossoff into those Senate seats, they're going to come up again 
those Senate seats will come up in 2022. Those were special elections. Those were not a six-year Senate seat. So the immediate impact of voting rights restrictions will be felt in places like Georgia. And that effect, because if you remember the importance of the Warnock and Ossoff seats to get to a Senate Democratic majority, basically, with Vice President Harris as a tie-breaking vote, that could shift the entire power balance of our Congress. So it may seem little and it may seem very specific to a certain state, but the filibuster's impact on our entire legislative process could be huge. Especially considering that Governor Kemp just signed into law all of those voter changes, which will have to, you know, voter restriction laws, which will be in effect for the 2022 midterm elections, right? Right. And the midterms are less than 18 months out, right? They're not some futuristic thing. Like we don't have, you know, we're not on a four year presidential calendar. We are thinking about the midterms that those campaigns are going to start soon. And so we need HR1 to pass, especially to offset some of these things that are happening on the state level in terms of voter suppression. You know, I guess my fear is like that, or I guess we just need to have faith that American voters are going to get out there in local elections and vote for people that they believe in to make the representation in the federal government what it needs to be in order to move the country in any direction at this stage, right? So I guess let's talk about how do we eliminate the filibuster, just so we know, because there is good news. And that is that all it takes to eliminate the filibuster is a simple majority vote in the Senate. And this can be done at any time. Can they filibuster a filibuster vote? Potentially, right? I mean, I guess if you're, yeah, there aren't really restrictions, you could. But Senate Democrats can introduce a big package of democracy reforms like D.C. statehood and expanding voter rights, which they've just done. Mitch McConnell, the self-proclaimed grim reaper of progressive legislation, then initiates a filibuster. Democrats can then hold a vote and with just 50 votes, eliminate the filibuster and prevent McConnell from vetoing the legislation. If you're wondering about how this would look, this is a sample scenario of how this could work. So the democratically controlled House of Representatives passes and sends to the Senate H.R. 1, which is a landmark pro-democracy bill that puts political power back in the hands of the American public. Check. That's been done. All right. The democratically controlled Senate now attempts to pass H.R. 1 and send it to the Democratic president for signature. But because Democrats don't have 60 votes in the Senate, their efforts are blocked by Mitch McConnell, who has vowed to kill all progressive legislation. Democrats face a choice, either accept congressional gridlock where none of their priorities get done or do away with the filibuster in order to pass their priorities with a simple majority. Senate Democrats then choose democracy and try again to pass H.R. 1, but this time vote to eliminate the filibuster to prevent McConnell from blocking it. H.R. 1 passes with a simple majority and goes to the Democratic president for signature. McConnell calls it an undemocratic power grab, but democracy is saved and Democrats can move on to other priorities like health care and climate legislation. Then we as an American public get to win on other priorities like healthcare and climate legislation. It's uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll see what happens because then what I'm concerned about is the ping pong effect where we go back and forth and back and forth on different bills. But at the end of the day, having everything stalled is not making any progress anyway. So what can we do here? Call, write, or email your senators. Make sure your voices are heard on H.R. 1 and the future of the filibuster. We may have our best chance yet to get one roadblock to legislation that is truly by the people for the people out of our paths for good. But it will depend on all of us raising our voices and being heard. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. 
Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces.